0: Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. God present with us in the person of Jesus. God with us personally. God with us experientially. God with us as a human being. God with us as flesh. The coming of Christ ushered in a profoundly, in some ways, new way of being with His people, God in flesh. And not just with His people, but with each of us, a profoundly new way of being with you. So, we'll start this morning with a question. Are you experiencing Emmanuel? How is that going? God with you in person. So, this Advent season, we're looking at this unique historical event God coming to be with us. We're looking at it through a unique prism, the prism of One of Jesus' most profound and to some provocative statements when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I'm going to be with you as the way, the truth, and life of God. Brian kicked us off last week with Jesus with us as the way. Today we're going to take a step to the next phrase in his statement, Christ with us as the truth. What what comes to mind to you when you hear that word, truth? What images come to mind? What words come to mind? What phrases? So our strategy this season has been to break this statement down, way, truth, and life. Often I think of them as needing to go together. It's hard to have God's way without his truth or his life. Conversely, it's hard to have his truth without his way and his life. It's hard to have his life without his truth and his way. But we're isolating them for the sake of consideration, separating them. Jesus declaring last week, I am the way to God. I am the way of God. No one can come to God except via this way of Jesus. And now today we hear him say, I am the truth of God. I am the truth to God. No one can come to God. No one can be with God except via the truth that is Christ. It's a rather bold, bodacious kind of statement. I am the truth of God. (laughs) Dave, you liked my bodacious, didn't you? (laughs) We're going to make three observations today that hopefully will help us think about what it means for Jesus to be the truth of God, to get our minds wrapped around it. But when he said, I am the truth. So here's the first one. God's truth is anchored in God's grace. God's truth is anchored in his grace. So let's start with John's birth narrative. His Advent story. Some would say, wait a minute, John doesn't tell the Advent. He doesn't have a birth narrative. There's no shepherds in John. There's no manger. There's no, no vacancy sign in the Hampton Inn. There's none of that. There's no hay, no wise men, no star in the east. Yet, I would argue it's very much a gospel of birth about birth. He likes quoting Jesus, talking about being born. John is all about birth, but he takes a different route than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John tells the story of Jesus coming into the world very differently. We've talked about that some here as we've looked at the gospel of John this year. You remember how he starts his gospel It's the birth story in a different way. In the beginning was the Word, he writes, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was alongside God in the beginning. All things came into existence through him. Not one thing came into being apart from him. In him was life, And that life was the light of men. And the light has been shining in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then a few verses later, John makes a statement that in some ways forever changed the way we thought about God being with us. It changed the way we thought about Christ And the Word became flesh, he writes. And it made its dwelling among us. And the Word became flesh. And John adds, and we've seen it. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace. And full of truth. And out of his fullness we've all received grace in place of grace. Grace after grace already given. For he says the law was given through Moses. That was an early expression of grace. Grace and truth, he writes, came through Jesus. This is John's Merry Christmas story. You might want to consider including this story in your family's reading of Advent. Let's think for a minute about grace and truth together. I've been reading, I just started actually a devotional book that I'm going to go through next year. I brought it just to, I'd recommend it. It's been really fun. It's called The Word Became Flesh by an evangelist from the last century, E. Stanley Jones, and if you're looking for a devotional book for next year, I would recommend it. You can come take a picture of it if you want after. But in the book, Jones asked the reader to note which comes first. Is it truth or is it grace? He writes, grace must be first. For the first thing about God is love, and grace is love in action. Grace is God favoring us when we are unfavorable. Grace is God loving us when we are unlovable. Grace is God redeeming us when we were, by every common sense, unredeemable. Grace must come first, he writes, for our faith is not first based on a thought or a philosophy, but an action, an act of love. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is grace, that is love, that is God in a manger that is God in a wood shop, that is God on the streets, in the fields, by the sea, That is God on a cross. First grace, then truth. Jones writes, truth comes after grace, for we can't handle the truth without grace. We can't bear the truth without it. For it is grace that turns the truth into gospel. Good news to every person that God demonstrated his love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, sinners estranged from God, rebels deserving to be written off by God, while we were still seeking our own empty ways. That's the truth about you and about me. While we were still all those things and more, Christ died for us. That's the truth about us. And that's the truth about God. That's the truth that's so profoundly personal and experiential for us. Jesus, who has come from the Father, full of grace, and full of truth. It doesn't, in a sense, matter which came first, for they cannot be separated. They come together to us in Jesus, through whom God became flesh, became personal. Jesus was grace and truth in flesh. These aren't impersonal propositions, they're not cold doctrines, they're not sterile, they've come to us, grace and truth, in person, in a person, in a person laying in a manger, Jesus, grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ to us, that's our first observation, Truth is anchored in grace. Here's a second. God's truth is knowable. It's able to be known. Certainly not exhaustively, but adequately. second scripture for John is in John 8. We covered it not long ago as we've been in the gospel of John as a community. In October, I think it was. So all I'm going to do for this second observation is just read the text that we covered already, let it sit with us, and just ask a few questions from it. We don't have time to re-go through it or unpack it very much, so I'm going to trust that your hearing it will be sufficient and lead you to more curiosity if you want more. Here's the teaching. It's a teaching about truth. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, he says to those who are coming to believe in him, then you really are my disciples. Then he says, you will know what? The truth. And the truth will make you free. What's the condition Jesus presents? What's his if here? You see it? If you hold to my teaching. What does a person holding to Jesus' teaching demonstrate? It's right there, isn't it? Authentic discipleship. If you hold to my teaching, you demonstrate that you're my disciple. And what's the result of holding to his teaching? It's knowledge of the truth. Why? Because Jesus is God's truth. He embodies it. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, and then you will know the truth. And what does this knowledge of the truth do for you? It makes you free. He's speaking to the longing of the human heart, He's speaking to the quest of the Spirit. He's, spree- he's speaking to the search for release of anxiety and worry. It makes you free. Knowledge of the truth does not make you angry or frustrated or religious or always right. It makes you free. That's the second observation. God's truth is knowable, profoundly experiential, profoundly personal. Here's the third observation. We really already said it. God's truth is Jesus. Jesus is God's truth. The last text for observation in John is a bit odd. It's not related to Jesus' birth story at all, although we're going to hear Jesus talk about himself being born in it. It comes near the end of his life. He's being interrogated. He's on trial. He's being grilled by the governor of Judea, Pilate. This is an incredible exchange that we're about to hear. Anytime that we get to hear a private conversation with Jesus and an individual, we should really pull up a chair and listen, because there's usually so much there when he's really eye to eyeing someone, especially someone who's not yet following him. We learn so much about Jesus So this exchange is really worth meditating on. It's found in John 18. As Jesus is being questioned, this is the first round of an exchange between Jesus and Pilate. There's another one or two following, but we're just going to look at the first one. It reads like this, Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him. So Jesus has been brought to Pilate by the Jewish leaders with accusations. The Jewish leaders don't have the legal right to put Jesus to death. So they brought him to the Roman authority, the governor of Judea, Pilate. So Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? The fact that Jesus would ask Pilate that question is impressive. Remember, Jesus is on trial. He's being interrogated. Have you ever been interrogated? I'll bet most of us have, maybe it's because your mom walked in and your hand was in the cookie jar, and you had crumbs on your chin, and she said, have you been eating cookies? Or maybe it was your eighth grade math teacher who had a private conversation with you and said, you know, it's odd, Kendall, that your answers are exactly the same as your friend Stephen." on the exam did you and Stephen share the answers with one another during the exam most of us when we're interrogated when we're going through that our defenses are rising and what are we thinking about we're thinking about how am I going to get out of this without being beat up too badly how am I going to survive this We're thinking about our well-being, not the well-being of the interrogator, because we're the ones on the hot seat. But here's Jesus on the hot seat being grilled by this Roman authority with a very politically charged question. Are you king of the Jews? And here he is responding, not by trying to weasel out of the interrogation. But instead, thinking about Pilate. Hmm, Pilate, did you come up with that question about me being king? Or was that idea planted in your mind by someone else? It's a probing personal question he has for Pilate. I think it's a question that was designed to lead them into a conversation. A deeper, more personal conversation conversation. I think it was a question asked in love. I think it was a question peppered with grace. The pilot isn't about to let Jesus be the one asking the questions. He's not going to relinquish control of the situation. Because when you're doing the interrogating, it's important that you be the one that remains in control and dominate the conversation and keep the upper hand. So Pilate says, am I a Jew? It's your people, your chief priest who brought you to me. What is it that you've done? So Jesus responds this way. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. He's saying, I wouldn't even be here. We would have already cut the ears off your soldiers. But now my kingdom is from another place. It's a fascinating response. Jesus answers this question about, are you a king? It's sort of a backhanded way. Well, I do have a kingdom, Pilate. But he goes on to say, but my kingdom's not from this place. In fact, it's not a worldly, political kingdom at all. I imagine. Pilate is communicating, Pilate, I am not a threat to you, to your boss or your boss's boss in Rome. My kingdom is from another place, it's from another world. I'm not competing with your political power. I'm not interested in leading an insurrection or taking you out. My kingdom is different, it's different than you could ever imagine. I imagine that Jesus is inviting Pilate to listen, to learn of a kingdom so unlike the kingdom that he knew, the kingdom of Rome at that time, a kingdom that used force and dominion over others. It was a kingdom fueled by power and by an iron fist. Jesus' kingdom was so profoundly different than that kingdom that Pilate knew. And I believe Jesus is inviting Pilate to consider a different kingdom. A kingdom of love. A kingdom that didn't rule by force, but a kingdom of power nonetheless. A kingdom powered by grace and truth and love. I think this was Jesus' way of saying to Pilate, Merry Christmas, Pilate. Here's a gift for you to unwrap. Will you unwrap it? Here's another opportunity for Pilate. Will he get curious and listen to Jesus and unwrap this gift? Because he could have. He could have said, whoa, what is this kingdom you're talking about, Pilate? please tell me more. I'd like to learn about it. I don't know of this kingdom, but that's not what Pilate does. Instead, he latches on to Jesus' statement about having a kingdom. So then, he says, you are a king. And I think, sadly, this is how I imagine it. Jesus responds by saying, It is as you say, Pilate. You say I am a king. But then he saves the best for last. He offers another gift. On the one hand, what he's about to say has great clarity in it. On the other hand, it has great mystery. It's this so like Jesus, what he's about to say to Pilate. The reason I was born, he said, and came into the world is to testify to the truth. There's our word, truth. The reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. And I imagine Jesus leaning in a little bit or or his eyes narrowing or something like that. And capturing Pilate's attention He says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Uh, Only Jesus could have come up with this. I think what Jesus is doing here shows both situational awareness. I think Jesus is softening his approach a little bit with Pilate. He's already said he's the truth of God. I am the truth. He's already said it. But he says to Pilate, I came to bear witness to the truth. I think he's saying this in a way that maybe would draw Pilate in just a little. That would make Pilate curious. This is another attempt of grace and truth for Pilate. He's inviting him to take a step. To Pilate and everyone looking on, this looked like an interrogation between a powerless, helpless carpenter from an obscure village and a man who'd been given authority by the government. But to John... And to his readers, this was not an interrogation at all. This was an opportunity for someone whom God loved to be born, to take a step, to discover. It was an opportunity to move toward radical discipleship. To entertain the fact that the kingdom that he's gripped his whole life, that he's lived in, that he's been nurtured in, is going to take him to the wrong destination. It was an invitation to a new kingdom. That had a completely different way. And was held up by a completely different truth. Everyone on the side of truth, he says, listens to me. I think that's the most compelling statement. But for Pilate, it's a missed opportunity once again. His final exchange in this discussion ends with sort of a cold philosophical response from Pilate. What is truth? He says as he walks off to the crowd so, if you read the rest of the narrative carefully, which we don't have time, time for, but in John 18 and 19, you'll see Pilate trying to shake this conversation off of him. He, he can't get over it. He can't get over this opportunity and this invitation. You, you see him trying to get it off his hands, so to speak, See, Pilate was demanding truth from Jesus in the form of information. Are you a king? Jesus had truth of a different quality for him. He admitted being a king, he speaks of his kingdom, so there's no denial. But it's truth anchored in grace. It's truth of an eternal life kind you know it would have required a lot of humility for, for Pilate to take that step a lot of humility I think it always takes a lot of humility for us to receive God's truth because his truth always confronts us in our kingdom whatever we're in the process of constructing for ourselves whatever ambitions or opinions or agendas that we're trying to build Jesus' truth sort of disarms that it has a way Of bringing us before God, of bringing us with God in a very personal, powerful way. A lot of humility. We saw that, we heard that in the Advent story this morning. The Magi, the humility they showed, the surrender they demonstrated by bringing these expensive gifts, by investing all the Time of research and travel and inconvenience to be there. The gospel writers note when Jesus taught, the people were amazed because he taught as one with authority, one with power. Why? It wasn't simply because he was teaching new information. It certainly was that. But it was because this was the truth of God in their presence with them. The very truth of God. This carpenter, he was truth. He was the truth of God. There is no way to God's truth except through him. There's no life with God apart from him. Truth standing right there in person. As he still does. He wants to be the truth for your life. He wants to be the truth for my life. He wants to be the capital T truth for our lives. So I'll I'll leave us this morning with just a couple questions. Are you experiencing Jesus as your truth? How is he being truth to you right now? For me, a a big truth lesson that's actually, I think it's been going on for at least 40 years. For some reason, I just can't quite graduate from it. Dustin, maybe you can help me out. Dustin just got his master's degree Friday. I need a graduate's assistance. But the lesson has been learning to trust Jesus as my truth when I am feeling and aware that I am not enough or that I don't have enough, that I'm not smart enough or I'm not confident enough. Or whatever. You fill in the blank. How can I make my life anchored in what Jesus says about not being or having enough? Because he speaks to that frequently. That's my ongoing lesson, learning. So where do you need this is the I guess the second question but it's akin to the first where do you need Jesus to be truth for you Truth is found in Jesus He did not come to give us all the answers that we demand from him There are answers in him they are plenty But if he came to just answer all the hard questions, surely 2,000 years of church, we'd have figured them out by now. But here we are still wrestling with many of them. He came as the way to the truth about God. He came to stand before us in person, laying in a manger. In the wood shop, in the street, in the classroom, in the home, in the cubicle, laying on our beds, when we ponder the questions, he came to be truth in those places, the truth about God. God. And the truth about God that he came to bear witness to is this. He is the truth. That's where he wanted to lead Pilate. The truth he wanted to bear witness to was I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. It's so profoundly simple and mysterious at the same time. It's so profoundly simple that that Hazel could talk about it this morning before the service. It's so profoundly mysterious that even people with master's degree, like Rabbi Stanley on the back row back there, will spend the rest of his life in ministry pondering it, as we all will. Jesus is the truth for us.